0: Al Jazeera podcast. Can a court force governments to act on climate change? A group of young activists is suing dozens of governments in Europe and beyond. They argue these governments failed to protect their rights to a healthy environment. So could this case lead to concerted action on global warming? I'm Mohamed Jamjoum and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests. Joining us in Paris, Catherine Gamper. She's head of Climate Change Adaptation Program at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And in London, Ashfak Kalfan. He's the Director of Climate Justice at Oxfam U.S. A warm welcome to you both, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Ashfaq, let me start with you today. This is a landmark case. It's the largest ever climate case to be heard by the European Court of Human Rights. From your vantage point, how significant is it?
1: It is very significant. It's the first case um, before the European Court of Human Rights on climate change, and it is the uh, first and so far only that targets 32 different countries that are members of the uh, Council of Europe that set up the court. So it raises a whole number of very interesting um, and broad um, legal questions. And also uh, because it's against so many countries, if the court rules for the plaintiff, it could have a pretty significant
0: impact on the world as a whole. And Ashfaq, uh, you mentioned that this raises some pretty interesting legal points going forward. Uh, what are some of those that you consider to be the more interesting legal arguments being made in this case?
1: Sure. the, the most um, the most challenging one uh, legally is that um, the, the the people the, the, the children who brought the com- well, they, they were children that brought the complaint were are, are making claims against 32 different countries for their separate actions that are having an impact on them normally the court uh, when it rules it normally rules on uh, impacts on uh, that a state has on people within its direct control um and so the issue of climate change shows how to properly respect human rights the you know the court cannot um simply hold that right stop at borders because emissions don't stop at borders impacts happen externally as well. Catherine I so saw you re-
0: rules- go, go ahead Ashfak sorry.
1: So if the court, ru- court rules correctly it will hold all these countries liable because all of them are causing the impact that is affecting the plaintiffs.
0: Catherine I saw you reacting a lot to what Ashfak was saying there and it looked like you wanted to jump in so please go ahead.
2: From our perspective, I think what is striking to see that uh, it, it's, of course, it's a cross-border issue, but uh, the impacts of climate change are felt locally, and this is how much I gathered from the news thus far, is that they're very much constructing the case on the basis of the impacts that they're feeling in their own countries, such as Portugal, as they were describing the health impacts of uh, wildfires and extreme heat that they've been suffering over the last few years.
0: Uh, Catherine, let me also ask you about the fact that this summer was the hottest on record. Uh, This case is arguing that young people in particular face a future of hardship because countries are simply not doing enough to combat climate change. Uh, From your vantage point, are the countries that are named in this lawsuit, based on what you've seen, actually preparing to face the effects of climate change?
2: Very slowly so. So I... And each time, unfortunately, it takes an extreme event to get a little bit of of progress in terms of legislation, in terms of actual investments of adapting to climate change. It's nowhere near as much as we would have to do in order to keep the levels uh, of, of, of lives and the levels of suffering that we're having today To keep that constant in the future, there's a large amount of investment that is needed. And what climate uh, uh, researchers and experts argue all the time, that it's a fraction of the costs that you need to actually adapt to climate change now. And so it's easy, so to speak, to to protect our lives, at least in the next uh, few decades, not in the long run. In the long run, I think without climate mitigation, we ain't going anywhere. But at least in the short run, it it will cost a lot less to actually adapt as opposed to each time letting these extreme events happen. And we are not seeing that countries are making sufficient progress, even in the face of of the images that we're seeing all across the world practically this summer.
0: Uh, Ashfaq, one of the core arguments in this case is that that this is causing a lot of anxiety and distress for young people. Uh, They're not just talking about the physical health here when it comes to climate change and the impact it's having on health. They're also talking about mental health. How does that differentiate this case from other cases in the past?
1: I mean, there's a long history of um, looking at uh, cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment as, uh, and punishment, not only the mental aspects, and uh, not only, excuse me, not only the physical aspects, but also the mental aspects. So in that sense, um, they are simply applying that same logic to climate change that has been applied in human rights cases previously addressed by the court. So it's 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 quite um, logical for them to, mm. to 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 apply. But yeah, but I mean the the, the impacts. Are, I mean are just are just horrendous. And one thing really, I mean, for of course this is a case about impacts in Portugal. But mm. if the case is successful, it it will have impacts on. Places um, where the impacts are, are so much worse. I mean, we saw the drought in Eastern Africa, mm. uh, which was, you know, 99% or even 100% caused by climate change. Um, and, and there you have, I mean, the, the it's just staggering, the, the amount of uh, uh, impacts on people's lives, health, survival.
0: Uh, Ashfaq, you mentioned uh, that the youth who brought this case, uh, you know, they come from areas in Portugal that have been ravaged by wildfires and, and heat waves. Um, they filed this case three years after a series of forest fires in 2017 killed dozens of people. They say they are suffering from severe anxiety because of all this. Uh, they say that they are representing an entire generation. Um, this really puts into stark relief how existential this issue is for them. And I want to ask you if you think that this is the kind of case that has the potential to connect with the public more because of that.
1: I, I think, you know, I think that that is actually one of the reasons why this, um, the, the the people who brought this case, you know, did so. It, it really brings out that element of um un, the lack of fairness towards the younger generations, the lack of intergenerational justice. The people making these decisions are really not the people who are mostly going to be affected by it. It's it, it's the um, the younger generations and the future generations because we we are we are headed towards uh, a world of three degrees warming um, by by 2100. And some of the plaintiffs who brought in, some of the youngest
0: ones would still be alive and would face that and you know and will smell it and taste it. Catherine, we know that the occurrence of extreme wildfires is growing uh, with unprecedented damages in so many countries uh, around the world. And and this case is, is highlighting that to a certain degree. I, I want to talk to you about some of the research that you've done uh, when it comes to the growing occurrences of wildfires, how that is impacting communities, how much damage is being caused as a result.
2: Yes, thanks for that question. It's uh, it's. In fact, wildfires is an issue that we've observed across all all different uh, biomes in the world. You've had wildfires in Indonesia, that are uh, in indirect consequences, so the longer term consequences of respiratory diseases killed above 100,000 uh, people, an estimated 100,000 people. And while in OECD countries, so in richer countries, you may not hear so much about uh, about lives lost in, in proportionate terms, you still see some, some, some victims that actually lose their lives. But nevertheless, I think the indirect impacts in terms of health are virtually the same. The wildfires in Canada this year, for example, put all of Northern America in the US, including all of New York City, under an alert of uh, of, uh, air quality. And we will only see the results exposed of of how how much respiratory um, uh, distress we suffered and how much uh, in excess uh, fatality rates we can observe in in that very instant. But the consequences, they trickle down uh, ginormously. Not the very direct impacts are suffered by the community, or for very obvious reasons in terms of their own personal assets, but also in terms of their sources of income when you think about timber, but then they trickle through the entire economy, as we've seen in, in, in Portugal or also in Canada, where, where you see percentage drops in GDP outputs in the very years where these extreme events happen. For example, the bushfires or the the, uh, the 2018 campfires in, in California, they produced the damages that we estimate at around 20 billion US dollars, which is completely unheard of for ex- extreme events of wildfires. We, these are numbers we've heard before when we talk about extreme Flood events uh, similar to what we've seen recently, but never for wildfires. And I think, take pick your, your your climate-related extreme event, or even the slower onset ones, the droughts. They mm. cause a tremendous amount of economic damage and obviously hardship, as we've just heard, uh, especially in in mm. the southern hemisphere.
0: Catherine, if we could just take another step back for a moment, um, I'm curious to know your thoughts on if you believe that countries, uh, if their policies and if their practices are actually evolving. In the face of this increased risk from wildfires, I mean, are we seeing countries actually scale up? Because oftentimes when these disasters occur, it looks as though countries are being more reactive and had not really been proactive in trying to combat this in a different way.
2: Oh, absolutely. And the dynamics are unfortunately still the same old. I've been working on this topic now for the better half of the last two decades. And unfortunately, the dynamics are still the same. So, if you look at spending, or take just pick pick again uh, one example, pick wildfires and pick uh, the spending, uh, expend, public expenditure for wildfire suppression in the last 40 years. If you look into the United States, for example, or Portugal, you see that spending has increased like 20-fold for suppressing wildfires, which correlates uh, perfectly well with the sizes of wildfires and the frequency that we're seeing. But if you then look into actual spending on on preventing those wildfires and By all means, we know how to prevent disasters. We know how to adapt to them in in a better way. The slow onset ones, as well as the sudden onset ones, we know what we can do. We can manage our forests better we can plan our urban environments better so as to reduce the wild and urban interface just to give you an example we know a lot of what we can do to reduce the urban heat island effect which as you know is dramatic especially in european countries as well and yet we don't do any of that we always wait until a, a, an extreme event happens and this is where we then put the money whether this is efficiently spent? No, not at all. We can even show the benefits of uh, the cost-benefit ratios of such measures, introducing them early mm. and then comparing them to what would happen exposed. And yet, what we're achieving is is very little traction. But what countries are doing, I don't know if if you've pointed to that already. But in the climate targets that we're discussing here on on mm. mitigation more and more introducing adaptation more stringent adaptation targets as well that's that i would interpret as a step in in the right direction but it's very very slow progress
0: uh, ashvac i, I want to ask you your thoughts on some of the key arguments on both sides of this case first i want to ask you about uh, an argument from the plaintiff side one of the key accusations from the plaintiffs is that the fundamental human rights of people are being infringed upon because the countries in question have failed to adequately reduce human-caused warming. How strong of a legal argument is that from your perspective?
1: Um, It's a a strong argument because they can show a direct line between the failures of these governments to uh, reduce uh, emissions and the impacts on their lives, of course, the lives of of, of many others. That's the the climate science is it is has become so clear that that's um, it, it just cannot be questioned. Mm. Um, I think the challenge of and maybe you're coming to this government side would be well, you know, we should pass. Uh, it's for governments to decide the types of policies that should mm. be adopted to 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 address that. Um, the thing is, though, I mean, the governments are are, are not doing. I mean, they can. They, there's a whole range of measures, that, different policy measures they could be taking to reduce emissions. Um, uh, there's, no, is, there's not necessarily one one uh, single uh, way to get there. There are different ways to get there, but they're not getting to the result. We are we are headed to a world of uh, a temperature uh, warming of about two point seven degrees. Mm. Uh, governments have said that their target is is 1.5 and that by the way is not is actually not a target set in hum- based on human rights standards we are seeing vast violations of people's human rights food housing shelter on the current warming which is about 1.1 1.2 degrees so you know one the governments are are, are not setting the right target they're setting 1.5 to 2 which is itself insufficient and they are not even meeting that they, they their own plans if you read them, show that they are insufficient. So yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not meeting those targets. And re- really, governments should be doing should be doing all that's in their power. I mean, mm. that's the standard the health. Are they doing all that, that's in their power to prevent the harm to human rights? And look at any any government's actions. They're not doing that. They're not mobilizing the millions that are ne- the, the billions that are needed to shift us to renewable energy. They're not insulating homes. They're mm. not switching from gas to heat pumps. You know, they're not. Um, you know they're not putting taxes on private jet, private jets, SUVs, a whole a whole range of things. I mean it's it's, it's really um, uh, th- their policies are almost based on magical reality that somehow mm. will encourage renewable energy. We will put in some uh, inadequate carbon pricing and and offsets and that will resolve the problem. I mean it just won't. And any serious scientist, any serious policymaker will tell will, will, mm. will, will show measures are insufficient and, and, and are not really half measures.
0: Ashwag, let me get back to you in just a minute with regards to the arguments that are being made by European government lawyers. But first, let me go to Catherine, because I did see Catherine reacting to some of what you were saying. It looked to me like you wanted to add to the point that Ashfaq was making. So please go ahead.
2: Perhaps just to add that, uh, yes, it's true, uh, the the stringency of measures that are currently taken could perhaps uh, be quite a bit stronger. And uh, I think if you look at at, uh, sort of uh, multilateralism in that space uh, is also taking a hit because they are such hard fought negotiations and countries are very heterogeneous in their positions. But we are making progress. I mean, especially in highly developed countries, emissions have been going down. And I think what we're also trying to tell our countries as we support them in in their policy-making progress is that we need to tell the good stories and the opportunities that lie behind uh, engaging in in, in fighting climate change. And and as much as I work on adaptation and as much as my duty is uh, to put the the impacts to the fore and find measures of how we can adapt and protect our communities from these impacts, Mm. I think it's also important that we find positive positive stories. And uh, we've been hearing a lot about uh, this year that actually contributed to reaching some of the, what we call, climate tipping points. And you will see that, as our colleague just said, 1.5 is actually not enough to to avoid uh, us triggering these climate tipping points. And while we can only tell exposed in any given year whether this was actually a tipping point, uh, a lot a lot of the, what we've seen in terms of impact is pointing that it was actually a tipping point year. Mm. And we see that even with just a half degree warming, these tipping points uh, will be triggered a lot more in the future. But what we're trying to to, to tell countries or, or what we're trying to get their thinking heads on is really to say what are the positive tipping points in society? How can we turn the tide in, in favour of transformative action in, mm-hmm. in policy making. And I think this is quite an important story mm-hmm. to tell as well that there's opportunities lying in the way that we manage these transitions going forward.
0: Ashfaq, let me get back to you now about the arguments in this particular case. European government lawyers say that they accept the impact of climate change, but that these cases should be heard in national courts first. Uh, their argument is one based on jurisdiction. What do you say to that?
1: um the the issue with that is that the challenge um is 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 not is is not national i mean in a, in a national court um it'll be easier to to hold the government to account for the impacts on the people within within that territory but so for example you know germany has had um litigation uh in in the courts about the impacts on german young people but the court said that we are not looking at the impacts on people outside um, and so it would be deeply problematic if german policy for example uh, decisions are made purely on the basis of the impacts on on germans because the impacts vary between countries and the impacts are worse um uh in 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 countries that are um you know uh are more vulnerable to the impacts of of climate change so yeah that's that. you know that that would be problematic to to, to deal with these things uh nationally mm. rather than recognize them for the transboundary um, uh, situations that they actually are uh,
0: catherine uh, last month a judge in the u.s state of montana handed a historic victory to young activists in a case involving climate change um in europe Uh, at the European Court of Human Rights, there are two more climate cases that are now pending. Um, The fact that there are these two other cases pending at the European Court of Human Rights and the fact that there was this victory in Montana, do you think that we're going to see more of these types of lawsuits being brought going forward?
2: It certainly shows that uh, climate change is alterating people's lives directly or indirectly in the form of climate anxiety, in the the form of expected um, future opportunities as well. I think this is what they're clearly showing, but we've seen these litigations as well on the adaptation side. We've seen litigations against local authorities, local responsible actors such as mayors that failed to protect people against heavy storms, against floods, And Why do we see these litigations? I think it's an attempt in an environment where a lot of the policies that we're working on are not necessarily mandatory, are not necessarily policies that federal governments, central governments can mandate, but uh, they can only uh, uh, provide guidelines. In the end, a lot of authority is then at other levels of government and in a very desperate attempt to sort of hold everyone to account and, and hold actors responsible for their dreams, we see these these litigations. I think their their importance, uh, symbolically speaking, uh, should not be underestimated. And I think the more climate change will impact lives of communities around the world, the more mm. we see such litigation process uh, processes happening.
0: Ashwag, rulings by the European Court of Human Rights are legally binding for member states. um, But do you see complications going forward as far as implementation if the plaintiffs were to be successful in this case and if that ruling were to be legally binding? How easy would it be to implement? Um,
1: Well, I mean, the the level of implementation of their judgments varies. Um, I'd say that most of the countries... Uh, in question would um implement the the decision they, they they may take the time about it um they um generally the the history is where where a, a ruling is very very clear um it like payment of compensation for example that's normally just done but where uh it requires a strong uh, long programmatic change sometimes that does that, that, that does take uh, a while and, and mm. some governments drag their feet on it. So, for example, check the Czech Republic and its the decisions that have been uh, imposed on it on uh, non-discrimination against Roma communities, lots of foot dragging there. There are mechanisms by which um, ministers, um, the, the Council of Europe can hold states to account for implementation. Of course, when there's a clear judgment, it makes it much easier for the governments to be held accountable by civil society.
0: Catherine, let me ask you, and, and please uh, just be be, be uh, mindful of the fact that we have about a minute and a half left. Um, do you think that if this case is successful going forward, um, that a specific mechanism would need to be created, to be put in place in order to ensure that enforcement was actually effective?
2: I think enforcement in, in general of all the climate policies that we're working on uh, is helpful. Because we see that uh, where where you cannot hold anyone to account, progress has been very, very slow and limited. So whatever instruments help us getting there in making sure that the targets that we're setting, we know what targets we need to reach in order to keep to a 1.5 degree warming scenario. We know what measures to take, both on the mitigation side and on the adaptation side. So what often is really lacking is that uh, uh, we actually enforce these policies and hold uh, hold everyone that is responsible in society. And by all means, it's not just governments to account of what we're doing would Mm. be helpful. So anything that can help us uh, get to where we need to go, I think is very welcome.
0: All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to our guests, Catherine Gamper and Ashfaq Khalfan. This episode was produced by Mohamed Al-Aishi, Omar sum Sharif, Fungi Nguyen, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Aston Goodison. The program was edited by Alex Kerler Linda Nguyen, Vanessa Keneally, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Friday for our next episode.